Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PullMaps Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Qadr Yildirim. He's the author of a new book, Muslim Democratic Parties in the Middle East, and a, a research scholar at the Baker Institute at Rice University. Uh, Qadr, welcome to the program. Um, good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, so tell us about uh, about your new book. Uh, what's the main uh, uh, contribution that the book is making, and, and the major arguments that you're trying to get out? Right. Um, I think the main contribution of the book is to uh, bring uh, politics and economics, um, or the economy, um, of analyzing Islamist parties and their evolution, change or lack of change over time. Um, typically, when we look at you know um, the studies that are conducted on Islamist parties, we see a focus on disproportionately on the parties themselves, but kind of um, distance, um, detached from their links to the constituency, right? Their support base, uh, and you know, moreover, these are political parties, so we have to look into the relationship between the two. It's not just political parties um, shaping the public opinion, you know, um, pushing their constituency in certain directions, but also the constituency, you know, pushing the parties in certain directions. So in this regard, I look at how changes in the constituency of these parties, you know, what we can call the Islamic, you know, um, voters, Islamic constituency, how the change in these groups, societal base, actually pushes these parties into revising their positions. And, and uh, as a result, the odds of winning um, or losing elections or becoming how, you know, popular or lack of popularity. So in this sense, I look at economic liberalization processes as, as fundamentally, you know, uh, important um, I think turning points in, in a lot of these um, um, countries in the Middle East, you know, um, throughout late 1970s, early 1990s, and into um, early 1980s, and then into sometimes 1990s, we see a big um, change in how these states um, approach to the economy. A lot of economic liberalization policies have taken place, but the nature, the structure of this, these economic changes, liberalization reforms, have varied significantly. In some cases, it's very open, you know, um, to integrate, you know, uh, marginalized and, you know, um, disenfranchised parts of the society, which are typically um, uh, supportive of Islamist parties. And then um, in other cases, that hasn't been the case. You know, there have been economic liberalization reforms, but um, these reforms have typically um, just reinforce the existing political economic structure, not to, you know, um, change it, transform it in any meaningful way um, to undermine the political underlying political structure, but just um, some cherry-picking what kinds of reforms to enable, uh, enact, and then um, how the existing elite, political and economic elite, can benefit from this. I make a conceptual distinction between competitive economic liberalization and crony um, um, economic liberalization, and in cases where we see competitive economic liberalization, Islamic constituencies have typically benefited um, to some significant degrees, and we can identify two distinct constituencies. One is um, the small and medium business owners, um, who typically vote, you know, uh, for for conservative parties, Islamist parties, and you know, this this economic liberalization process have benefited them in ways under competitive liberalization in ways that turned many of them um, into you know, billion-dollar companies over time. Uh, not obviously all of them have um, been th that successful, but they've, they've prospered in significant ways. So they have been able to move from the very end of the, you know, economic spectrum into the center slowly, sometimes displacing them significantly. 
So, so you look at a few different countries right. in there. So, so give us some examples, like uh, in, in particular countries where you see this playing out. Right. Um, so I look at in in my book um, to Turkey, Morocco, and Egypt, and um, the reason I chose these countries because they allow us to look into the um, sort of the the operation of um, or or functioning of this economic globalization to different degrees. Um, on one end of the spectrum is Turkey, uh, in which we see, I think, the best case of competitive liberalization, where um, the Islamic constituencies, especially small and medium business owners from the um, suburban areas or, you know, um, um, from smaller cities, cities um, that are not Ankara or, or Istanbul, but to some degree in the suburbs of these cities as well, uh, we see them benefiting greatly. You know, some of these um, companies have big turned into many, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, and they've supported um, the, um, or they're falling in line with the AKPs. You know, and what, what's the connection? Why, why is the connection between the AKP and these small and medium business owners as opposed to their going in some other political direction? Um, it's because, uh, well, it, we need to go back, I think, before the AKP period. You know, AKP is only established in 2001, but, but when we go back to 1960s, when the first Islamist movement was officially established in Turkey, small and business, uh, small and medium business owners, you know, sort of the, the marginalized, displaced, um, you know, uh, disenfranchised groups within the society have been within the broader umbrella uh, discourse um, of, of, of um, this movement, this political movement. And, you know, we, I analyze in my book, you know, how early on the discourse of these parties have actually emphasized small and medium businesses and point out how they have been discriminated against by certain government policies, you know, how they favored big businesses, you know, as opposed to small and medium businesses, right, to create these uh, really big um, sort of business elite that would be the drivers of industrialization and economic modernization. And um, this is creating this sort of support base for this party. So we have a long, you know, um, kind of an ideological marriage between the two. And a part of the reason also is that, you know, typically um, these small and medium business owners come from humble backgrounds, you know, typically from, you know, um, rural areas. And they have this sort of identification with Islam, maybe not so much um, always religiosity as such, but religious identification that Islam is part of their upbringing. It's, it's part of who they are. So from early on, then, the uh, the Turkish Islamists cultivated this constituency, and and they tailored their economic policies to reward groups that were already inclined to identify with them. Exactly. I mean, um, so we over the, over the course of nineteen nineties, for example, uh, we see a independent business owners association, MUSIAT in Turkish acronym. Um, being established and actually prospering, you know, it's it's one of the major business associations right now, and um, very closely aligns with the uh, policies of the AKP in terms of the economy. And you know, they have um, exclusive meetings with government government officials um, since two thousand and one, uh, two thousand and two, uh, but also even before then with the welfare party. They they used to have these informal networks, you know, coming from the same I think ideological um, um, backgrounds. So. Um, and right now, and there is some um, clientelistic, you know, relationship, patronage relationships also growing out of this in the sense that, you know, um, a significant disproportionate um, a share of uh, bids, you know, at the national or uh, at the municipal level go to these parties, uh, to these businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but um, even before then, you know, we see them, the most critical part for my argument is that 
we see them benefiting from this competitive liberalization, right? I mean, and we don't see that, for example, in the Egyptian case of liberalization, which is on the other extreme. So right? Egypt would be your the a crony, crony. yeah, crony liberalization, in which, I mean, we see, we've seen more than a decade long, maybe two decades long, you know, um, process of economic liberalization, but it's so cherry-picked that, it, I mean, it, it loses from its um, quality of liberalization, but, um, you know, um, you liberalize in a particular sector, that sector, but don't touch a lot of these sectors because they're sensitive. Right? Why? Because um, they're related to people like Ahmed is, you know, before the revolution, for example, uh, people who are closely related to the regime um, or, you know, bigwigs in the regime. And, uh, and so as a result, really, the benefits um, do not, um, you know, spread to the, neither the mass population nor to the small and medium business owners. So what we're seeing as a result of that is, um, these constituencies fail, um, they don't change, they don't transform uh, over the course of years. But in the Turkish case, what we're seeing is over the course of 1990s in particular, we see a change in how these this Islamic constituency have revised their preferences, um, their perspective into uh, economic policies, uh, more in favor of economic globalization, um, their perspective into democracy and what they expected from democracy, you know, and they emphasize rule of law and how democracy facilitated, facilitated their businesses, uh, how they looked at the role of religion in the state in politics, and instead of, you know, um, this confrontational political Islam, Islamist discourse, conservative one, um, they, they opted for, you know, adopting a more social notion of Islam, which is essentially the idea that, you know, we have these shared values as a society, so we're going to continue emphasizing those, those family values, you know, in some extent, in some context, it, it is patriarchal values, but instead of emphasizing religion as such, these are shared values, you know, this is, this is what our heritage, what our identity is, so, so to speak. Um, so, this, I argue, this, this transformation within the constituency is, is pushed upon, you know, the, um, the parties themselves, you know, to, led to a period of re-evaluation, you know, um, um, listening to what the constituency is saying. And we, we actually see this in 2000, 2001 with the AKP. They, they reach out to the, you know, um, the electorate and to see what they expect from, mm -hmm. uh, from them. And, um, and I provide a, you know, qualitative evidence to that effect showing that this is this is what they're doing. You know, this is, they're trying to tease out what the expectations are on on important issues, what the important issues are from the constituency, and um, devise their platform accordingly. Whereas in Egypt, uh, the liberalization clearly goes along the lines you're describing, right. but both the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis. Uh, develop their own kind of independent uh, economic sectors, uh, kind of outside of of those, you know, the, the the center of the economy. Right. I mean, so the advantage of this competitive liberalization is, you know, provides a lot of opportunity to uh, prosper, right, um, accrue wealth and see opportunities uh, or the benefits of um, uh, of these opportunities in terms of um, doing business and getting richer, so to speak. Um, so when you have crony liberalization, those opportunities are not provided, right? That, that's, that's a problem. Um, so in the Egyptian case, very interestingly, uh, Hizbul Wasad, you know, Wasad party established in mid-1990s, even though it wasn't legal, but it was operating as if it was a legal party in many ways, have failed to touch base, you know, sort of align with the preferences of the Islamic constituency in Egypt. And I, this is where, for me, the real, you know, the, the you know, the, the real action is, um, so to speak. Whereas, um, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood's discourse 
has really connected with the Islamic constituency because, you know, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood was critical of the economic globalization process. They were critical of how the regime was, you know, uh, manipulating that. And also democracy was not even figuring very highly. You know, they were in favor of contentious politics, you know, polarization and such. But Hizbul Wasad, on the other hand, was not like that. Uh, they were in favor of economic globalization. They kind of supported that. Um, but, when, you know, the constituency wasn't clearly benefiting from that, right? So, I mean, you're basically undermining your, um, sort of alienating your prospective constituency by emphasizing uh, or adopting policy positions that's not going to resonate with the, with, with the people. And I think this is where the, um, the real action is. Compare that with the Turkish case in which AKP is not the only sort of Islamist party in Turkey. There is this, um, the remnant of the welfare party called the Felicity Party right now, when you look at this party since 2002, I mean, they're in two, three, four percent, you know, um, margin in elections, all elections. And this is a good indicator. And if the constituency hadn't really changed, why would they switch between um, their um, uh, allegiance, so to speak, loyalty from the conventional Islamist party to the AKP, right? I mean, um, mm -hmm. so I think that contradiction, uh, that comparison is... is um, evidence, in, in my view, of this um, effect of the transformation within the um, constituency and how this is reflected upon the parties themselves. And then the last country you look at is Morocco. And so right. is the PJD more like the AKP in the sense of its ability to cultivate the economic interests of this Islamist or right. Islamic uh, constituency? Right. Um, so... I make a distinction between two distinct Islamic constitutions. One is small and medium businesses, you know, who benefit from um, um, from economic division policies. But also there's this mass constituency, right? I mean, just um, lower classes, middle classes who identify with Islam, Islamic identity. They also make up a significant portion of the support for these parties. So in the Turkish case, you know, because of the depth of economic liberalization process, um, competitive liberalization, we are seeing that um, it is able to, you know, um, benefit or provide opportunities for both groups. In the Moroccan case, it goes halfway, you know, um, the small and medium businesses benefit from this, especially with, through the linkages to European markets uh, with their export sector. But we don't really see um, this, um, the, the, the benefits of or, or the opportunities um, of the economic liberalization process um, penetrating into the um, mass level. So this is where we see, interestingly, two distinct um, Islamist groups. You know, PJD is appealing to a larger extent to, um, you know, business interests, uh, whereas the Al-Adul al in, um, in in Morocco remains conservative, remains critical, remains polarizing. Um, they don't change their discourse in terms of economy, democracy, and such. Uh, and they, we see that they, they're actually significant. They found find significant support among the mass levels, not so much from the business world. Hmm. Um, so this conservative appeal, this sort of kind of, kind of confrontational stance, I think, is appealing to the, at the mass level, whereas um, the the benefits of this globalization process, kind of half-baked, you know, competitive liberalization benefits the business owners, and they are more in favor of the uh, PJD uh, in Morocco. So, so it sounds like one of the big takeaways is that when you look at these Islamist parties, you shouldn't just be looking at their, their political ideology or at their religious discourse, but really at their economic policy and what social base they're actually linking to. Right. I mean, you know, typically, especially as it relates to, you know, um, policy issues, for example, today we're interested in how and why or in which ways can we 
try to entice Islamist parties to change themselves, right? I mean, so it, I, w the one takeaway point is that this is a very kind of, kind of a long process, you know, deep-rooted phenomenon. We have to look into the constituency, and this takes a while in terms of changing the constituency because we have to recognize in the first place this is, these are political parties, and they speak to certain constituencies, and unless we take those into account, it's really difficult, you know, one example to that is 2012-13 Egypt, right? Um, Muslim Brotherhood was there. You know, some inclusion moderation people would argue that, hey, they're included in the system. They've assumed, you know, governmental role, right? Um, so they should liberalize or they should moderate over time, more, be more democratic. But the problem with that argument is that the constituency is still there. Right, the conservative constituency is still there, and you have a very strong competitive com competition with the Salafis in Egypt. So, I mean, you tend to go in a more conservative direction, um, and th there is no escape for that because if you don't do that, um, the Salafis are going to capture a greater share of the constituency, and you're going to lose in the election. So, I mean, this is um, in that regard. I think. Um, looking at the broader dynamics of sort of Islamist parties and looking at uh, from a party politics perspective, I think is, is, the, uh, is the best way to go about understanding the moderation process of these parties. Well, great, thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Kadir Yildirim, uh, Rice University's Baker Institute, uh, talking about his new book, Muslim Democratic Parties in the Middle East, uh, just published by Indiana University Press. Uh, Kadir, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.